Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 22 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode, on the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, I address the following topics. First, a recent article I wrote entitled, Should Civil Society Outlaw Sin? Secondly, a follow-up article to that on what was the Spanish Inquisition really and what really were the other inquisitions that are not talked about. And lastly, as I've become accustomed to, I address some of the upcoming feast days this week, including some of the unique changes in these particular feast days that occurred in the 1950s and the early 1960s. So if you're new to the traditional Latin Mass, or if you usually only go to the 1962 Missal, you might not be aware of some of these things. So please stay tuned. But first of all, I would like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by PrayLatin.com. PrayLatin.com offers Latin prayer cards to learn and share prayers in the sacred language. Learn your basic prayers without spending more time looking at screens. Conveniently carry Latin prayer cards with you on the go and share the basic prayers in Latin with your family and your friends. PrayLatin.com prayer cards are available in various formats so you can practice your pronunciation with easy-to-follow English phonetic renderings. PrayLatin.com also offers Latin-English rosary pamphlets with the traditional 15 mysteries. Visit PrayLatin.com today and take advantage of the generous free shipping offers on both domestic and international orders. Thank you, PrayLatin.com, for sponsoring today's episode. On the first topic, though, for today's episode, I'd like to address a recent article that I wrote, and I will link to it in the show notes, entitled, Should Civil Society Outlaw Sin? Since we recently celebrated the liturgical feast of uh, St. Thomas More, uh, his feast day was um, originally kept on uh, July the 9th, that is, after his uh, canonization. He was canonized by Pope Pius the 11th in um, 1935, and then John Fisher was also uh, canonized as well by uh, Pope Pius XI. Um, what's interesting is their feast day was only a regional feast day through the 1960 Missal, kept in England and Wales. Since the Novus Ordo and the calendar change in 1970, the general Roman calendar has celebrated St. Thomas More with John Fisher on June uh, 22nd, the date of Fisher's execution, but traditionally he had a separate feast day, July the 9th, and July the 9th just occurred. So I wrote this article in his honor, and also in a, really in remembrance of the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What I wanted to look at here was the, the question, should civil society outlaw sin? What does the church traditionally teach? And what's interesting is we've seen a decriminalization of sin steadily throughout the 20th century. In fact, until the mid-20th century, most U.S. states, especially southern and northeastern states, had laws on the books against fornication, adultery, cohabitation, and other grievous sins. Now, these laws have been gradually struck down or abolished by courses unconstitutional. As of 2023, adultery is still a criminal offense in 15 states and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. But in the past decade, numerous states have decriminalized adultery. From Utah, Idaho, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Colorado, and West Virginia, and others. 
It is a, a, a commonly occurring trend. Yet even in states where it's still a felony or a misdemeanor, convictions are extremely rare. Additionally, the legality and availability of artificial contraception changed significantly after the often undiscussed Supreme Court decision of Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965. That infamous case led to the legalization of contraception in all 50 states by asserting that alleged right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution. The same mindset would lead to that disastrous decision of allowing the murder of unborn children in the 1973 decision Roe v. Wade, which thankfully has been overturned. The same thing, though, can be said of divorce as well. Numerous states uh, criminalized divorce. It made it very difficult. For instance, prior to 1949, South Carolina did not allow divorce under under any circumstance, making it one of the last states to uh, legalize divorce. So, um, but that was not the case in other states. Massachusetts divorce was illegal until 1887, when the state passed a law allowing divorce on limited grounds. And every state, you know, had had different um, renderings of the laws as well. But the point is. We don't often think about this, that sin was criminalized. It was not just an offense against God. It was a civil matter as well. And it matters because civil society has a responsibility to outlaw sins, especially those that cry to heaven for vengeance. A government's primary duty is to promote the common good. This term is grossly misunderstood and does not refer to what materially benefits the greatest number of people. Rather, the common good, as St. Thomas would teach us, is the good which benefits all citizens. These are spiritual goods, truth and order, unity and the worship of God. The government, above all, has a responsibility to uphold the common good, and it also has a responsibility to protect its citizens from external nations and from threats within. Yet there's no greater threat than sin. It can destroy sanctifying grace in the soul, damn a soul for all eternity, and the collective weight of all of a society's sins undoubtedly further builds up to incur the wrath of God, which we have seen many times even since the infamous days of Sodom and Gomorrah. So as such adultery, extramarital sex, abortion, contraception, and pornography need to be illegal. And while it's unlikely that in our world, without the direct intervention of our Lord and Our Lady in a truly miraculous way, could ever outlaw these sins totally, we can and should work to do what we can to ensure these sins are at least harder and harder to perform. As such, attempts to regulate pornography by requiring age verification and the use of heartbeat laws without law which outlaw the murder of unborn children after the detection of a heartbeat are steps in the right direction. They are not the end goal, but we should nevertheless be supportive as improvements to make sins harder and harder to perform for the good of our collective society and for the good of other souls as well. So I'll have more information in that article regarding the church's teachings on this, as well as more about the family really being a bedrock of society and how civil society must subject itself to God's reign, along with a prayer to St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher for these intentions. So please check check those out in the link in the show notes. Secondly, really a follow-up to this piece, I wrote an article on the lies about the Inquisition, also for the Fatima Center. Now, of all the calumnies hurled against the Catholic Church by those opposed to her, allegations regarding the Inquisition are some of the most notorious. Yet history shows us that, like lies about the Crusades, they tend to be false. Please uh, make an effort, too, to go to the show notes to read this full article, because we often, as Catholics, get accused of things regarding the Inquisition, particularly the Spanish Inquisition, and for the atrocities that likely occurred during it. And people um, use that as fodder against us. So this article is really meant to help uh, you 
you as a person in the pews to be able to combat these accusations by people who are opposed to our faith. Now, what do people claim happened during the Inquisition? Now, it's common to claim that during this Inquisition period, individuals accused of heresy were put on trial and if found guilty, could face punishments ranging from fines and public penance to in Uh, imprisonment and torture and even execution. Now, the Spanish Inquisition is the most well-known and the most frequently referenced. It was established in the late 15th century and allegedly targeted Jews, Muslims, and Jews who had converted to Christianity who were suspected of secretly practicing their former religion. Now, anti-Catholic allegations claim that thousands of people, if not more actually, were executed during this period, and many more faced expulsion or imprisonment. But what really happened? Now, the Inquisition did have its roots in the early 13th century when it was established, uh, the Papal Inquisition, that is, by Pope Gregory IX in the year 1231. The Inquisition marked the formalization of an effort to combat heresy within the Church. The Papal Inquisition aimed to identify and suppress heretical movements, particularly those associated with the Cathars and others dissenting groups in France. Now, the Dominicans were instrumental in combating the Cathars. Now, the Cathars are a truly, uh, really heinous group. For instance, the Cathars really believed suicide was good since they claimed it freed a man's soul from his body. And they also believed that there were two gods, a good one who presided over the spiritual world and the evil one who ruled the physical world. So then the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. They even viewed sex within marriage and reproduction as evil, but they somehow supported fornication if done in secret so others wouldn't know about it. Now, their insidious ideas were harmful to all of society, yet they did not just affect the here and now. They have eternal ramifications that can lead souls to hell. Therefore, the rightful authorities of both the state and the church at the time had a duty to step in and suppress these errors, as we talked about previously in Should Civil Society Outlaw Sin? Now, over time, the Inquisition expanded and developed, leading to the establishment of various regional Inquisitions. Each Inquisition had its own specific jurisdiction, procedures, methods of operation, which resulted in differences in the histories and practices. The most well-known among them is the Spanish Inquisition, which is established by the saintly rulers of Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella in the year 1478. There were also separate Roman Inquisitions, which began in 1542. St. Robert Bellarmine is well known for his role as an examiner of bishops and the consultor of the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition from 1597, where he strongly uh, was concerned with discipline among the bishops. Um, In addition to this, the Inquisition continued to exist, actually, in some form until the 19th century, though its power and its influence gradually declined over time. In 1908, Pope St. Pius X officially abolished the Holy Office of the Inquisition and replaced it with the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office, which later became known as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and just last year was renamed the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, the Inquisition is frequently confused. It's very difficult for people living today with a Freemasonic attitude permeated by the separation of church and state to really understand this. But the biggest error is 
is the Inquisition is a failure, that is that lies about the Inquisition, is a failure to make a proper distinction between the church and the state. Just as the church and the state can work together but independent of each other, so too the Inquisition had basically an ecclesial department and a secular department. So this ecclesial part overseen by the church made rulings as regards to doctrine. For example, is this person guilty of heresy? The church would always provide an opportunity for someone to recant their heresy, and if the person remained obstinate in guilt, the church would then pass them over to the secular department. So it is the secular aspect of the Inquisition as an arm of the state, not the church, but the state, that rendered punishments. The state has legislative, executive, and judicial powers in its sovereign territory. The state made uh, laws governing heresy as well, and in its judicial branch, it could render punishments, including the death penalty. And a king or governor could legitimately execute the proper punishment. The state has authority in all criminal cases, not just heresy, and the right to administer lawful punishment for the good of its citizens. Now, the Spanish Inquisition is really much a lie due to these lies that have uh, continued to spread regarding this Spanish black legend. Now, people who read them today mistakenly assume they must be true simply because they're centuries old, but historians and propagandists were manipulating facts back then just as they do today. I, again, have more information in the, in the show notes, including several links to books published on this, as well as articles for those who are interested in much more information. Um, but what's interesting is we, I also quote some of Father Stephen Keenan's catechism. It talks about Queen Mary, uh, how she put to death 277 Protestants uh, for the rebellious opposition. Protestants have had ample revenge um, to continue to exact you know, re- revenge against Catholics, and nobody accuses them really of, of anything. Um, it's really only Catholics who are attacked. So I, again, have much more information in the show notes. So please take some time to look at that, especially if you've ever been asked about the Church and the Church's role in the Inquisition, so that way you can answer them in more detail. It's much more detail than we can go through now in today's episode. But the last topic I would like to talk about briefly is the upcoming feast days for this week, especially since we should strive week by week, day by day, to live an authentic liturgical Catholic life. I'd like to highlight some, very briefly, things coming up this week. So July 17th, tomorrow, is not only the Feast of St. Alexius, it is in some places, the humility of the Blessed Virgin Mary, a really beautiful feast day. I'll have a link in the show notes so you can go to the liturgical calendar and check out these for more information, but I would highly recommend exploring that because this particular feast day, the humility of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is really not discussed uh, anywhere. Um, So it's something that we can learn a bit more about and pray and meditate, particularly Monday, on the humility of Our Lady. Uh, July 18th is the Feast of St. Camillus of Lillis. He was uh, a founder of an order dedicated to the care of the sick, and he really should be an inspiration for us all. After his mother died, he was virtually abandoned by his father. He fought against the Turks as a young man, but he developed an addiction to gambling, and he was completely destitute. He was really inspired by a capuchin. Uh, He was unable to be professed in the area due to disease of his leg, which he contracted from the war. But he eventually persisted. He dedicated himself to caring for the sick, became a director of a hospital in Rome. His spiritual director was actually the illustrious St. Philip Neri. And with St. Neri's consent, 
saying Camillus was ordained a priest, and he founded that congregation with two others, and they went on to do marvelous works. It's really a great opportunity for us to learn more in my article on the scapular of the help of the sick, a devotion that I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about, but which we can learn more about, the scapular of the health of the sick. It's also a great day to send a note or encouragement or even visit somebody you know if they're in the hospital. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul is also celebrated this week. His life is particularly well-known, so I won't say anything about him. But in addition uh, to that, um, there's also St. Jerome Emilian this week on July the 20th. He's really the patron saint of orphans. He was a Venetian noble who joined the army and was taken prisoner. And after a miraculous liberation attributed to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, he began a new life entirely devoted to charity towards the poor, especially orphans. And for this work, he founded hospitals, orphanages, and institutes for fallen women. In the year 1532, he established his congregation, which embraced also the education of youth in colleges, academies, and seminaries. And he finally died during an epidemic in the year 1537. But he is truly the patron saint of orphans. We should ask ourselves what we can do to further and help traditional Catholic orphanage. There are definitely some still around. Look it up, traditional Catholic orphanages online, and please consider making a donation this week to support their efforts and offering a prayer through the, the, the patron of orphanages, uh, St. Jerome Emilian, for the good of orphans. July uh, 21st is the feast of St. Lawrence Brinzini. Uh, what's interesting is in the pre-55 calendar, it's the feast of St. Pradaxis, uh, but St. Lawrence Brindisini uh, is something most people are going to be uh, seeing in the Mass set of, if they're going to Mass this coming week on Friday, July the 21st, because... In the year 1960, John the 23rd established him as a doctor of the church, and his feast was uh, established on July 22nd. Beforehand, it was the feast of St. Pradaxis. So after this change, which is reflected in the 1962 Missal, the Virgin St. Pradaxis was reduced to a commemoration to make room for St. Uh, Lawrence of Brincini's feast day for this particular day. Uh, beforehand, uh, before this change, his feast was actually kept on July the 7th, only in some places, though. So he was added to the universal calendar and put on July 22nd. Now, who is he, though? He was the last saint to be named the doctor of the church before Vatican II, and he was really famous. He acquired a great fame for learning and eloquence. He labored with remarkable success in much parts of Europe, preaching to Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. When 80,000 Turks invaded Hungary in the year 15. In 1605, he inspired the United Christian Armies of 18,000 men to the attack and led the charge while carrying a large cross into battle, and the much smaller Christian forces were victorious. He eventually died in Lisbon in 1619 at the age of 60. Uh, you can read more about him in the show notes. Again, he was uh, added as a doctor of the church in um, 1960 by John the Twenty-Third, but he was beatified in 1783 and canonized in 1881. And the last feast day that I'll mention this week is St. Mary Magdalene. This upcoming Saturday, July 22nd, is the feast of the Apostle of the Apostles, as she is called, because she was the one who announced the Apostles the news of the resurrection. One particular aspect that I think is really worth noting is the use of the creed on her feast day. Now, in the Missal of St. Pius V from, you know, after the Council of Trent, the creed uh, was established to be said on every Sunday, several categories of feasts as well, those of our Lord, of the Virgin Mary, of the angels, 
of the apostles, of the doctors of the church, and to this list was added one other woman, and that was St. Mary Magdalene, because she was considered the apostle to the apostles. Um, this was not actually done beforehand, though. It was just a custom, and eventually it was added to the rubrics for this missal in 1570. It's one of the rare cases where a new custom was added to the Roman Rite from elsewhere in the highly conservative Tridentine Reform period. Unfortunately, in 1955, this the creed ceased to be said on her feast day. Uh, so that is one of the changes that occurred in 1955. And the creed also ceased to be said on the feasts of doctors of the church in 1961. So these are changes you won't see in the 1962 Missal. One of the many reasons I continue to hope and work for the restoration of the pre-1955 Missal. Um, but St. Mary Magdalene, a true apostle of the apostles, the Western Church has long accepted the belief that Mary Magdalene was also the sinful woman who anointed Christ's feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee, as recounted in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Her humility we can learn much about, as well as her uh, penitence as well. That is the topics for today's episode. Again, thank you very much for listening to A Catholic Life. As I've now had 22 episodes of really reflecting on the future of the podcast, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're getting a lot out of it with you and your families, and you're putting some of these liturgical practices uh, into motion. You're also learning more about the faith, especially about some of these uh, crises that I talk about or some of these historical or apologetic issues, which a lot of people don't discuss. I hope you benefit from it. Thank you so much to everybody who's listening. Please make sure you're subscribing on whichever service you're using, whether it be Apple or or whether it be Spotify. Please share the podcast with others. Ask other people to subscribe. Thank you so much for your support. Above all, may God grant you a most blessed week. Thank you again for listening, and let us all strive for greater holiness this week and every week. On my orum, Dei Gloriam. Oh,